Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Amy Sarek King, an award-winning author of YA Books. She's prolific, and her most recent is Attack of the Black Rectangles. Amy's a huge advocate for youth, not just with her books, but in many speaking engagements, addressing respect for our kids, asking us to trust them with honest communication, and demonstrating this by supporting freedom of speech, both verbal and in the written word. Amy Sarig King, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Good morning, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I am very excited because it's always wonderful to connect with an author, and particularly one who writes for younger audiences about really important, meaningful topics that uh, are, of course, important to them, but sometimes, you know, we look at them as, oh, we're your, your kids and we're trying to protect you, which is what Attack of the Black Rectangles is all about, right? Well, it's about a lot of things. Um, but, you know, I write for young people because, uh, well, I mean, my, my role on earth is to be an advocate for young people, especially in a world where we uh, encourage um, adults to take control of young people, um, often underestimate young people, control young people, um, and don't really listen to young people. I mean, in fact, we actively encourage in our society adults to bully teenagers. Listen to the microaggressions. Next time you complain about an eight-year-old to someone, they're going to say, just wait till she's a teenager. Or they'll roll their eyes, or they'll be like, oh, gosh, you know, that's a teen thing to like, or whatever it is, you know. So for years and years, you know, I've watched young people watch this, and I've watched what happens to their souls when they hear this, you know, sort of normalization of of, of sort of the, the underestimation and the, and the sort of disrespect toward, toward teenagers. And then I watched them also escape on the other side in their early 20s. They're like, I'm not, I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. I, I like to be an advocate for people who, you know, who are overlooked. And sadly, in our society, while we're talking about protecting them, we're actually often pretty normally, and we'll say it's been, become quite normalized, to, to, to kind of disrespect them. Is this something that you felt too as a teenager, or is has this evolved over time? Just observing what's going on in our world. Mm, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I felt it that much as a teenager, honestly. I mean, I think that we have we had an interesting thing with young people and their feelings, right? So and this can often be gendered um, to go into the binary, uh, but like. You know, we've talked many times that young men are allowed to feel anger, but they're not allowed to cry, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, we have our ideas of what young people should and shouldn't do, usually based on what we were told, right? So as parents, it's like, well, when I was a kid, right? how many times have all of us said that, right? Like, well, when I was a kid, you know, this, this is how it was. Well, I don't care. It's a different time now, a very different time now. So um, but we don't tend to make those steps up. And that's real. That's called stepping up, right? That's what that is. So, I don't know if I felt it so much when I was a kid. I felt like maybe that normal sort of do as you know, do as we say, you know, not as we do. And also, children are to be seen and not heard. You know, was probably you know part of still you know that generation. I'm Generation X, so like that was definitely something we still walked in. But no, it's more what I observe, especially. Especially now with, with things changing so quickly with technology and compared to my generation, these kids are so connected and so much, there's so much space for them to express themselves. And when they do, 
you know, um, it wouldn't hurt to respect and listen, you know, to actually listen to what they have to say and perhaps learn and change based on what they're saying because they are the future, right? Right. And maybe have conversations rather than feeling (laughs) I'm going to dictate what you need to do. Again, back to listen to what I say, do what I say. Mm -hmm. Conversations are everything. Conversations, that's my main thing, it's communication. Conversations, that's that's both listening and talking, right? Mm-hmm. We have to really learn. And when we when we talk to children, oftentimes we're not listening or we're blowing off what they're saying. I mean, I do work outside of, you know, writing. I do work with Mental Health America. I do work kind of around mental health and young people. And, and you know, 70% of teen mental illness goes undiagnosed or untreated. And that is a listening problem. Um, it's also a problem with access. That's a totally different thing. But going back to this topic, right, here's one for you. You know, teenagers don't want books banned. Kids don't. In fact, I have just spent a month on the road talking to young people, educating them, asking, hey, do you know what a banned book is? And they're like, no. These are fourth graders or sixth graders or eighth graders. And when we really get to talking about what is being banned and the why, right, this so-called protection, they are kind of blown away by it. And they look at their friends. They look at their friends of color. They look at their friends who are, you know, in the queer community as well. And they're like, wait a second, that's not fair. Like, that's, that's terrible. You know, why would you want to remove books with people who, you know, I can relate to and I love and they're in my classes? Why would you want to do that? And, um, and that's been a great question, you know, over and over again. Why? Like, why do you, do you think this is protection? Um, usually they're far savvier and we're really taking their agency away from them. If we're taking learning materials away from them. That's how I think. And that's certainly how they react. Exactly. So that's wonderful that you have those conversations with them. And I would hope that now, looking at the reason we are connected this morning to talk about your book, Attack of the Black Rectangles, here this really brings it very much into the spotlight to talk about censorship and banned books. And I would expect or I would hope that this is a book that is in school libraries or that kids get and bring to school and ask that it be there and and they have a conversation about because this really would be a great place to really discuss all of that, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, we're we're discussing other parts of civics. Why wouldn't we discuss the First Amendment and and the freedom to read? And this is a freedom issue. Last I checked, we're pretty down with freedom here. Uh, (laughs) So... We like our freedoms, but, but again, we go into conversations like that aren't including young people. I'm finding actually that young people, well, their voices are very important. So, I mean, for years and years long before this book, I, I go into schools and I talk to young people about how their experiences, their feelings, and their voices are incredibly important. Um, and that while many people try and shut them down and, you know, we'll tell them they don't have a space at the table to speak, in actual fact, they do. And they just need to keep trying. When it comes to this conversation, then um, I would hope that people, you know that they would have a, a seat at the table. And in fact, what we're finding is that young people being involved in book challenges and banning, but young people making sure that they have their voices heard is, is really helping at the you know at the school board level and at the like in the places where they can actually reverse bans across the river for me, so Central York school district and they had a shocking ban this time last year shocking a giant number of books and and books that you know when you really get into it these are biographies for second and third graders about Harriet Tubman or Rosa Parks or Sonia Sotomayor 
And why would one ban this? There's only one reason, and it was quite clear. And the seniors, actually, in that school district last year took that on. And then were, you know, the rest of the, you know, many students followed and they protested and they overturned the ban. And that was after my college, like we had, we had colleges, we had all my colleagues at the college, like all of us wrote letters, so many parents, so many people all over the country wrote letters and they just wouldn't overturn this ban, but those kids got that ban overturned. So, so yeah, it is absolutely a conversation we need to be having because young people need to know that they, they do have a space in this game. And that in itself is an amazing story that it was the students were the ones who were able to then overturn this. That really needs to be loudly proclaimed where, you know, everybody else was not getting any traction and they were able to succeed. So to show that, yes, you need to go behind your passion and and see what you can accomplish. Right. Right. I mean, they shouldn't have to be asked. They're, they're yeah. in high school. They have plenty of homework to do. They have plenty to do. They shouldn't have to be fighting people who are trying to erase factual, proven, well-documented American history or uh, people who are being bigoted, actually, against writers uh, in communities that are different you know, to their own sort of identities. Um, young people shouldn't have to, but sadly, these are the people that are actually making gains in that conversation. And yes, that certainly is more at the root of it, is why are we even having to go through that kind of a struggle that we are banning these books? What is the the great fear there? It happens here in Washington State. I didn't hear about it this year so much as I did actually last year as well. And even at that point, uh, once again, they were wanting to ban Huckleberry Finn. Oh, well, I mean, it's funny, you know, somebody asked me the other day, what books should be banned? I was like, that's a strange question. None. You know, I've written library policy. I've served on library boards. I'm a literacy teacher from way back. I've read things that disgusted me. I'm sure you have too. We've all read things that are really quite gross, um, oftentimes in the news. Um, But, you know, when it comes to books that that are disturbing or uncomfortable for a reader, well, we always have the right to put it down. Uh, We have the right to not read it. You do not have the right to tell me what I can read, though. I don't have the right Mm. to tell you what to read, right, Kate? So that's a pretty simple it's a pretty simple thing, but I mean that's not what's really behind all of this, right? This this wouldn't be, this is a national, a very organized movement. It, it's being funded by you know two very specific funding you know sort of sources, and these lists are going out to people. The people do not read the book, so they're just doing what they're told. That's another concerning angle. But this is a political thing. This is our kids are being used as pawns. That's all. And and as usual, you know the ones. That are being used as pawns are the ones with the, we'll say that the the voices that are harder to hear, you know, young people of color, you know, young people on on any sort of on any kind of gender or sexuality spectrum. Um, anybody who's not, I suppose, if I'm going to be real straight and honest about this, anybody who's not a white and allegedly straight kid, that is, these lists are very clear about who they're centering and who they don't want to center. And you know, the idea. I talked to a bunch of young kids uh, two days ago, fifth graders, and we were talking about, like, why do you think that adults think that learning about the Underground Railroad is inappropriate at your age? And these are young people of color, and (laughs) they knew darn well what that meant. (laughs) They're savvy. I mean, I think we forget how smart kids are. And so 
you know, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's far bigger than, it's not about books. It's not about the books. Is it ever really just about the books? It's about power. So totally different, a political power. So it's a shame that, that it's a, you know, taking access for of books that are, that can really help young people, their access is being removed to these books, but, but also then it's taking them to, and their voices to be able to overturn. It's distractions, distractions. It's a shame because education is supposed to be inclusive and fantastic. In a country like this, man, we could have a public education system that knock the rest of the world on fire, but we don't. Instead, we're just, we're just doing this fighting, you know, which is really kind of frustrating. Can you tell I've been talking about this for a month? <laughs> Sorry, Kate. Well, <laughs> obviously the passion is still burning and it's important until we really begin to see some change and movement, then you need to continue talking and uh, connecting with as many people as you can. And certainly this is a, a great opportunity. I appreciate this medium for that reason that we can reach people and, and you know, as it's changed to become even more uh broad in the sense that we have podcasts so that people can listen whenever. So your words and your encouragement and, you know, getting us also inspired and following our passion is important. Well, thanks. I mean, we could use all the help we could get at this point. You know, I mean, we just finished Band Books Week last week. And I mean, I've been doing intellectual freedom, you know, conversations with young people for years and years because it is important what information we have access to. And it's also important, um, I mean, when we look at media now, I mean, that's what we're on now, right? This is yes. media that we're, that, we're, that we're doing right yes. now. And, you know, I lived outside of America from about a decade years ago. When I left America, there was really no uh, 24-hour news. And when I came back, there was, right? It was sort of the weirdest change. I just left during this weird time. And media changed so much. It just did. And I think it's, it's good for us to make sure that we center critical thinking, right, in our homes, in our parenting, in our conversations, and make sure that we continue to give young people sort of the opportunity to make their own minds up about what they see and then give them the access to things, to the research, right? I just go back to the libraries when they were still card catalogs. I try not to, like, I don't know what it's like to be a student now and have internet everywhere. But if I think about what was available in my library, whether it was through an interlibrary loan or was right there on the stacks, everything was available so that I could research things that made me curious. And my life, I mean, if we go out away from this book, like my life's passion has been trying to understand hate, right? Because of where I grew up and the types of people that I met and I never understood it. So I have been reading things about hate, right? So it's, it's not comfortable work, but I, I'm glad I, those books exist so that I can see what it looks like, so that I can dissect it on the page. And maybe by the time I die, figure out at least whatever the answer is to the question I've been walking around with since I was a kid, you know? So it's, it's just important to understand that just because I don't know, someone else doesn't like a thing doesn't mean that you can't access it or read it. And yeah, we need all the, all the more people. We need people. We need people to write to their school boards. We need people to show up at their school board meetings. We need people to fight for this. And, and on a larger level, we need people to vote. <laughs> we, need to meet, we need people to vote locally. And it's, it's very important to include that in our civics conversations. 
And then to what we were mentioning earlier about having conversations rather than just blindly or mutely accepting a letter or notice from someone says, write this letter or you know, pass this on forward, have a conversation, ask why, and, and really unravel all of that. Absolutely. I mean, Kate, if I can be so bold, I, I get letters into my inbox. They're not kind. Um, I get letters into my inbox that are very kind, too. But the ones recently, over the last year, while my books are being banned across the country, the spots, start with the, the weirdest phrase. And it goes like this. I haven't read your book, but... And that's one of the most like, it's a really interesting way to start a letter, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, second of all, to not see the irony in the fact that you're writing to an author to say, I didn't read your book, but I think it's dangerous because of this. So I heard this thing about it <laughs> is weird. Like, that's just, I, I can't get down with that. I don't understand it myself. But that's because I tend to want to have read the book so I can have specific complaints about mm-hmm. a thing if, if that's the case. But yeah, I mean, that idea of a conversation is everything. I mean, a conversation, here's one frame. I knew a person in my family years ago. I was having a chat with her kid. Her kid was about nine at the time. And she kind of clapped back at me. She just turned to me because I didn't have kids at the time. And she said, 10 words or less. That's all kids ever need. And I've walked around with that comment for, well, my kids like in their 30s now, so for 20 years, and, and through parenting. And as I was parenting, sometimes I would take it on board and I'd say, oh, gosh, I'm talking too much, you know, in my head. And now I realize, no, mm-mm, nope, nope, 10 words or less is not the way to do it. This is a generation, and, and so were we, I think all of us were. We're absolutely capable of really, really smart conversations. They're very informed. I mean, only three years ago, my kid would be like, no, here's a fact. And I'd be like, and it was a wild fact, you know, okay? and I'd be like, whoa, I don't believe that fact. I mean, where'd you see it? Oh, I saw it on TikTok. Well, you're going to need to send me some citable resources before I believe that story. And he would have citable resources in front of me inside of about three minutes. And, and now when he says, hey, did you hear about this? I believe him 100%. Uh, but I'll say, I'll, you know, if it's a little bit too much, I'll ask for the resources again. But he can provide them. and He knows he has to with me. Um, these are savvy kids. And I, I think we all were. Uh, we just have to remember that they're smarter than we are. They've always been smarter than we are. There's a million songs about that. <laughs> it's scary, but they always are that little bit smarter. Are they as experienced? No, no, no. But they know how to do algebra. Most of us don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, that's a, a wonderful experience that you're sharing with us, Amy. And for us to really embrace that too, to to take the time to listen because, okay, yes, they don't have the experiences, but if we have the conversations and share our experiences, then they have a way of really beginning to think about things. So, I mean, to dictate and not allow them to experience that it is just so cheating them of really having a full experience of life. It's true. It's true. And I mean, they're going to go and get that anyway. That's mm. the thing. You know, they, they're going to go out unless they're afraid. If they're, you know, if you make them afraid, that's a different thing. But, you know, to, and this is where books come in, right? Like I think about people, I think about people that I know and me included who, you know, it's really important to be able to find yourself in a book. It's incredibly important. And, and, you know, people who found themselves in books early, you know, or, or who felt normal all the time. I don't know if anybody ever felt normal all the time, but I, you know, but I guess they don't see that. They don't understand it. But I, I know that there are kids who, when they finally read a book, like that has a queer character, 
that makes them feel like, oh, my gosh, like it's a real relief of, of not feeling terrible, even though that maybe out in the community, they are the loudest, proudest, you know, kid in the world about being gay. That doesn't matter. Deep down is what matters. So when they see that book and they read that, and it's a private space. A book is a private, beautiful private space to experience that sort of that connection with a character. The book that I have more than one, but there was a book that that showed me that same kid that I just described, it wasn't specific to like trying to eke out and figure out what the, the answer to hate was or the origins of it, but it was similar. It was a kid who was deep, thinks a lot, and had a few issues going on and had to figure out some trauma. So, I mean, when I go into schools, usually, Kate, I, I do talk about trauma. I may not name it by name, but I've worked with a great many survivors and a lifelong volunteer. And so when I work with adult survivors, obviously over the years, I realized that most of the things that happened to them happened before they were 18. Mm -hmm. And so I like to talk about these things with young people because that's the one thing we take away from them. We take away their experience, even though we have more, many of them have experiences that they need to help with, but they don't know how to talk about it. And they find those in books. And those are the letters I get most of all, Kate. Like, you know, so that's a wonderful thing to be able to write books where kids can see their trauma and go, oh, my gosh, somebody understands my trauma. And so you do then hear back from the kids who've read the books and mention that to you, that they found themselves there. Oh, my goodness, yes. And, I mean, they're deep. There's some deep letters. I mean, wow, long, deep letters from people who, you know, really, these young people might have been, like, on the edge. And I'm not the only one. My gosh, my author friends and I, we we get a lot of letters. I've talked to a lot of kids in a year. I get who, you know, like, well, I mean, the amount of letters I get in a year that say my mom and dad or my mom or dad, they don't believe in depression. Well, that's a good one. (laughs) That's real interesting, right? Like, that must be handy. Um, You know, or they they don't believe in therapy or they don't believe in, and and I understand that that, uh, on the other side of my work, you know, medication stigma, therapy stigma, those things are real. And to pass them on to a kid who really, really needs them is dangerous, very dangerous. And so, so then suddenly a book comes along and then they, they see that. They, they, maybe they see the medication stigma. Maybe they see that. It's written, you know, very realistically in a book. They can see themselves. And that, that's a lifeline is what that is. And so that's part of, you know, again, that's why we do what we do. And I can't just claim that for myself. A lot of people who write for young people are here to give kids that safe space to find themselves, see themselves, breathe out the trauma, and, and try and move forward with a, with a beautiful feeling of hope, you know. That is the best kind of therapy in a way, in that they find a way to relate to a character and they can transpose it to themselves. And not that they won't need actual therapy or medication, but that in itself is such good medicine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, this is this is it. I remember I read an Updike book way back in my early 20s. I was in Ireland. And I was, oh, it's winter. So if anybody's ever, if anybody knows Irish winters, they're nodding. Although you're in Seattle area, so you're nodding a little bit too, I'm sure. Uh, your, your winters aren't that far off. But I read this Updike book. It was terribly depressing. It was terribly realistic. That's why it was, it was depressing because it was so real. Mm-hmm. You could nearly smell, you know, all the things in each scene. And I remember crying for like a day. And it felt right to cry for a day. And then I was fine. Mm-hmm. And it, wasn't, it was just because I connected to something in that book. I, don't, I couldn't even put my finger on what it was. But it was just a human experience. Mm. A human experience. And I think that's the one thing, right? But there's, that's an update book. It was clearly that it was written for adults. 
But there are books that I read, and my books, my YA books are for adults as much as they're for, for young people. And, and mm-hmm. half my fans are adults. Half my readers are adults. So, you know, and there are adults there who are healing their inner children, healing their inner teens, because they're reading these books, and, and they're real. And someone is giving that human experience to the young person inside of them, because oftentimes adults are like, nah, just wait till you pay bills. Ah, you don't have to make dinner. We have something to say all the time to these young people, but you know what? I saw my kids trig homework the other day, and I nearly climbed on my bed. <laughs> right? We forget. Like, and we, we abandon our own teen selves. You know, Kate, this is something I've been saying to young people this, since I went back on the road post-pandemic this spring. Then, you know, I said, look, the, the version of growing up that's been modeled for you, I'm not sure it's the healthiest. I said, a lot of times what it is is uh, – and then you get to be 20, you get to roll your eyes at teenagers. You just you get to kind of just cut off from that embarrassing stuff that you were when you were 13 or 15. So I said, I'm here to re, I'm going to relabel that for you. That's called abandonment. Don't abandon yourself. Grab your inner child. Grab your teenager and take them through life with you and be darn proud of them. We all make mistakes. We all had bad haircuts. We all had spots. You know, <laughs> that's mm-hmm. not how it works, you know. And just sort of trying to counter the message that they get from society and from every ad on Instagram, you know. And just trying to make sure that they understand how much they're worth. Because, man, they're worth everything, our kids, right? They really are. And and it's just our society's often taught us to eh, kind of make a joke out of it, right? But it's it's time to kind of take some things seriously. And and that's, that's my role in the world. And aren't we really the great beneficiaries of the fact that this is your passion and that you are so committed to the work, Amy? So... All that you've shared is so critically important. We haven't really specifically talked about Attack of the Black Rectangles, but we have. Because now I want to say this, if you've not read any of Amy's work, then pick up a copy. And yes, I think books written for YA are really great reads for any age, meaning older. Some young kids may gravitate to it as well. But the therapy, the understanding, and and we can't say enough about that healing of the inner child. It, it sometimes is a very long, ongoing process. So books have that magic way of being able to do so, as you've just kind of expounded for us during this conversation, Amy. Yeah, and I think it's funny that we, you know, we just did a half an hour, and this is classic me. I don't talk about my book. It's just how I, I talk about the kids. It's what I do. But that's because the books are really a vehicle. But, yeah, I mean, this book, yeah, on the surface, it's about censorship. But deep down, it's about growing up, the difference between abandonment and growing up. It's not said that way, but um, but also just sort of, you know, non-traditional families, whatever that means, <laughs> and all kinds of things. But it's about a kid who needs to take the black rectangles not only off of his books, but off of his feelings and off of the problems in his life. And I think many of us can relate to that. So, yeah, I'm here to just try and get people to understand the kids still need us, need us as much as they ever did before, even more. So we need to be out there and making sure we take them seriously and having those conversations. Thank you so much, Kate, for being able to amplify that. Oh, well, I just love this. I love you, Amy, and that you are (laughs) so articulate about it, not just by speaking about it, but writing about it as well. So, wow, what a double-prong approach you have. So let's, before we go, mention your website so people can get other information about you as well. Sure. Yeah. And it's a little bit under construction at the moment. So I feel like I'm, inter- I'm like saying, hey, come on into my really dusty house. But um, it's www.as-k, 
asking.com. So it's just spells asking, but with a hyphen between the S and the K. You can find me there. You can find me on social media. I'm around. I'm not as loudmouth right now because I just finished tour, so I'm going to be quiet for a few days. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, those are the places to find me. Um, And thank you very much. Oh, it's been really my great honor, my privilege to be able to connect with you. And I'm so grateful to be able to share you with our listeners. So thank you for your work. And we look forward to more coming forward. Thank you so much, Kate. I'll try and deliver. This is a Sunday morning shout out, and it's about Cancer Pathways. Cancer Pathways is proud to present the 25th anniversary of the Surviving with Style fashion show. Starting as an idea to celebrate life and living each day to its fullest, it was because of this fashion show, four years later, Cancer Pathways, formerly known as Gilda's Club, opened its doors. So a little bit about the background. Gilda's Club Seattle, named in honor of Gilda Radner, who, when describing the emotional and social support she received when she had cancer, called for such a place of participation, education, hope, and friendship to be made available for people with cancer and their families and friends everywhere. The New York flagship facility opened in June 1995. Anna Gottlieb, the executive director of Cancer Pathways, saw a story about Gilda's Club and felt Seattle could benefit from such an organization, and that became her work and passion for nearly the past 20 years. Cancer Pathways provides the support for the entire family, extended family, that is facing a cancer diagnosis. Countless thousands of all ages have felt the benefits of Cancer Pathways, The Big Gala happens October 22nd at the Westin in Seattle. So many amazing survivors have walked the runway. This year, there are 25, ranging in age from 3 to 80. Check the website to find out how you can be there. If you can't, you can still support the incredible work of Cancer Pathways with a donation or finding out about volunteer opportunities. Find all of this at cancerpathways.org. Celebrate life, hope, and overcoming. That's cancerpathways.org. That brings us to the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Amy Sarah King and Sunday Morning Magazine with Brenda Ramos with Hand in Hand Kids. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast on our Warm 1069 webpage. Just click on the podcast tab, then either of the show names, and then look with the guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of this open communication and taking it into the community. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning. Good morning.